Probably. I have holes in my pants and I can touch my knee. One of my boyfriend texts me though. And then you'll have to pretend that you did. Well, no, he's not. He's he's just never gonna text you. Yeah, I start crying. <laughs> I just start falling. Did you say that? <laughs> I forget what happened, but the other day, oh no, oh no, I had a, a when we were playing D and D, I was not. I, my my anxiety levels were fluctuating. Sometimes I was fine, and then what did I say? I said so we were the chosen ones, and everyone started yelling at me. I sank in my chair and I was crying. I started crying. <laughs> did you actually yes. start crying? Yes, because oh. <laughs> the anxiety just like went over me, and I was like, "Why is everyone yelling at me?" I don't even. Th we were just yelling for most of that. Like, it just it wasn't just you. It was just in general. We were all yelling, but you just happened to say something that made us all yell right before yeah, yeah. oh man no, like, we were the chosen ones chosen chosen we were the chosen ones we were just chosen but no josh was specifically like calling me out and he was like we are not the chosen ones or something and oh he always does that old josh <laughs> um i was i don't know who i was with the other day i was i was driving back from um from a friend's house and uh, I was just in the car with my roommate and someone else, and <laughs> I don't remember what prompted me to do this, but um, I said, I was like, hey, what did what did one Frenchman say to the other? I don't know. I don't speak French. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> so dumb. Aren't those called like anti-jokes anti or something? Anti-jokes, yeah, yeah. I have a whole slew of them. What did one baker say to the other baker? We are both bakers. <laughs> What's green and has wheels? Grass. I lied about the wheels. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're on the spot now. You can't think of no, another one. I don't think of a specific one. Um, Give it up. <laughs> Give it up. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to work it in my head. Because it's so good, and if I can get it, it'll be worth it. It'll okay. totally be worth it'll it. It'll be Just worth give it. it. Give me a second. We're keeping all this in. Okay. What do a bike and a duck have in common? What? They both have handlebars, except for the duck. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't as good as I thought. Well, it's not it's as still good. good. What do a it's what do a mouse and cut. a ladder have in common? They're both not a lamp. <laughs> Oh, great. I mean, oh, now you're rubbing the mic while we're recording. Is that a no? That's a no-no. That's a no-no? No, because you're just going to clip the audio. Just I didn't clip it. Let me see if I did clip it again. Yeah, do again, do again. <laughs> I won't. I didn't know that was a no-no. Well, I mean, typically you're just not really supposed to, like, tap the mic while we're recording. You about, you almost snapped. You got your fingers ready to snap, and then you're like, oh, no. Yeah, I thought about it. <laughs> I really thought about it. <laughs> you're about to get it. You're in. Yeah, you yeah. He's looking at the mic <laughs> so seductively. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, well, I guess let's just get into it. Um, I'm Trey Taylor Smith. And I'm Randy. And this is Media for the Intellectually Impoverished, where... Uh, this is, uh, uh, okay, wait, hold up. This is Media for... Wait. Cut! <laughs> <laughs> uh, you do it. You do, I don't think you've done the intro yet. I haven't. What do I say? Uh, it's whatever you want. Hi, I'm Randy. And I'm Tay... Tra I'm, uh, oh, you <laughs> Come on, you didn't even have the hard part. <laughs> go, 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 go. Okay, okay I got that. I got that. I'm Randy. And I'm Trey Taylor Smith. And welcome back to Media for the Intellectually Impoverished. Where our goal is to enrich your media ochre lives. Woo, 
we did it. That's yeah, it. Yeah, great, perfect. That's, That's a wrap. wrap. Okay, I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> um, oh, I should hope. Should what? No, I was going to say I need to put my iPad on uh, airplane mode as well. Oh, shoot. That's actually a great idea that I just did. We're both, uh, we both have iPads. We're both better than all of you. <laughs> <laughs> all of you, unless you have an iPad. Unless you have an iPad. <laughs> then you're better than the others. <laughs> yeah, uh, unless you have a better iPad than us, and then in which case you don't, don't exist. Don't tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> don't let us know. <laughs> yeah. Um, you introdu- you introduce the topic. I want you to take it. Take it. Go for it. That's too much pressure. <laughs> wow, man. It's so easy. I mean, you're going to have to talk eventually. Take all the time you need. Okay, well, today we're going to be talking about uh, cinematography and cinematics, and that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's all we're talking about. Um, no, yeah. Um, well, let's define cinematography. Or, or, or do you have a definition? I, I have a definition. I did not because I wanted your definition. Okay, well, the definition that I have is the art of making motion pictures. So it's most related to movies and not video games. So, uh, uh, so he, all <laughs> of just, your opinions are irrelevant. Exactly. There is no cinematography in video games whatsoever. What? <laughs> whatsoever. whatsoever. I mean, but it's like it's it's just making good shots. It's it's like in photography when you have like a certain composition and um, specific rules that you follow. It's the same with cinematography, except the only difference is that movies and media like move. Photography doesn't yeah. move. Um, so there are a couple of elements that sort of, there's a lot of elements that really go into cinematography. Um, some of them are like color of the shot, the, the aspect ratio of the shot, um, you know, anything that sort of has to do with the visual part of it, which, Mm -hmm. which there's so many, like, like I said, color aspect ratio, um, like the do you do you have notes for this? I do have some notes. Well, you say the words. Well, I wanted to see how far you could get. Okay, wait, okay. Um, (laughs) color... Uh, uh, aspect ratio. <laughs> I'm checking them off. <laughs> okay, were those two on there? Yeah. Oh man, I'm so cool. Um, music, a sound design. That is not part of cinematography. Cinematography is visuals. You just said that. <laughs> anyway, guys, today we're talking about. <laughs> okay, it also has to do with the placement, movement, uh, focus, and lighting were the other ones that I had. Yeah, lighting. That was the one that I was trying to think of, but like I couldn't. Um, I'm just gonna. So I was lying right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you know this is a predominantly movie thing, so I think you should start us off. Okay, yeah. This time. Okay, so cinematography. I'm gonna first be talking a little bit about The Office. So I don't have a bunch on all of these different things. I have a little bit from everywhere. Um, so I want to talk about The Office. The cinematographer was uh, Randall Einhorn. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I listened to the Office Ladies podcast, and so they talk about him a lot. He's He was very good in having like deeper meanings for specific shots, and one of the things that I really liked was for the talking heads. So you've seen The Office, yeah. right? Of course, because it's a A1 classic. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the talking heads, he um, had the people in the office who weren't going to go far, who were like only going to ever work at the office and nothing more than that. When he did their talking heads, they had the office behind them. And for people who were going to make it outside of the office, they had a window behind them. So if you go back and you watch the first couple of seasons of the office, Jim is the only one who, when he does his talking heads, has a window behind him because they had always planned for him to do something better than Dunder Mifflin. And Pam, 
had the office behind her. And so you could see like Stanley working behind her and everything like that. When she starts dating Jim, she is now, when she t- does her talking heads, she now has the window behind her. And see, like, I can even picture that. Yeah. But it's it's like something that I never picked up on. Yeah. Like, I, even when I was watching it, it was it was just like, you don't even notice that, like, some of them are, are facing the opposite and some that aren't. Mm-hmm. Like, you just, you know, you just notice, you just, like, they're talking. They're just, they're just talking, yeah. yeah it's, I mean, it's a comedy show, so you're there for the jokes. So you're waiting for the punchline, and typically the talking head scenes is where you would get um, a punchline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, wow, that's an interesting. And I love that so much mm-hmm. that that there was that much thought put into it. It's great, and that's really what happens with cinematography is that it's a lot of planning. Like you can sometimes get good shots, but if you want a great movie, you need to have a great cinematographer who is planning all of this out and has a meaning for everything that they're doing. And so another thing that they do a lot is, I mean, because it's a, a mockumentary, a mockumentary of a, a mock of a documentary. I know what it means. It's a mockumentary. <laughs> a mockumentary, <laughs> yes. Um, and so for me, it makes I almost feel part of it. Like we're I'm I know I'm the audience, but you when you watch it, you almost feel like you're there. And that's a lot because of the cinematography, because of the way that they film it, like with the camera movements. A lot of it, while a lot of it is on still, there's still shots on um, a tripod. I was about to call them sticks. Sticks is the same Mm -hmm. thing. Um, There are also a lot of organic camera shots. So like when there's a chase scene or when like something like big happens, then you see the cameraman or you feel the the camera move and chase and run with them and it makes you feel like you're there in the action like oh i gotta i gotta see what's about to happen Mm -hmm. what's dwight about to do what stupid shit is dwight about to (laughs) get himself into (laughs) um and then there's also because it's um a comedy and they make jokes there's a lot of like panning with the camera so somebody will say something and then it'll and then you'll see somebody's reaction or you'll see what they were describing and that's what a lot of their humor is. But that's because of the, the cinematography and the the way that they had planned it out. Um, and it makes you feel part of it. I feel part of it. I mean, Jim and Pam are my mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad. Sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> but no, and that's what great cinematography does. It really involves you in the, in the story. And I think that's where we're going to differ when we talk um, throughout this episode is... When it comes to movies and TV shows, cinematography can bring you even more into it and engage the audience even more. It's supposed to keep you entertained, even when like there's no dialogue or when the main characters aren't moving. There can be motion in the background. There can be stylistic choices with the lighting or um, camera movements and things like that that will still keep your audience engaged and make you feel like you're sitting there with them. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, because... I mean, we'll get to it later, but I'm going to be talking uh, about like how cinema in order to include like cinematography, there's sort of the spectrum of like interactivity in a video game. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the more cinematic the experience, the less interactivity you're able to have because cinematography in essence needs to be controlled. Um, and so you as a player cannot control as effectively as what the developers want to, uh, you cannot control that cinematography or that cinematic experience. Yeah. Um, so if you want a more cinematic experience in your game, you need to take away that control um, from the player so that you can give them that experience and then hand it back. Yeah. 
Um, the other uh, person, this isn't a specific film or anything that I want to talk about, was Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. Did I say that properly? Yeah, Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Um, <laughs> and I, I, sort of, I kind of made her look this one up because one of the big things I wanted to talk about was The Ghost of Tsushima, um, which is so great and so pretty. I mean, but I'd heard of him before in classes, and I have to watch movies. I've had to watch movies um, that he directed, and he is a great person to talk about for cinematography because just the style of his um, films. So he was known for his movement within the frame. His subject a lot is nature. So when the, like I was saying earlier, when the main subjects aren't moving or when there's not happening when there's not much happening in the foreground a lot is happening in the background so he uses rain snow fire smoke all of these things in the background to catch your attention and just have so much energy within the frame because without it it would feel dead and that's what happens with a lot of people who don't have great cinematography um, you come out feeling bored or your your mind starts wandering away from what's happening in the movie and you start thinking about, what do I got to pick up from the grocery store? <laughs> like, just other things. And I got to go to the dry cleaners today. I got to go to the dry... And you're not focused on the movie anymore. And it's because something there isn't catching your eye. Something, it you've lost that, that engagement with it. Um, and the other thing is it needs to be able to um, not overwork you. Because that's another thing is, and this has more to do with cutting mainly than with cinematography, but it has to do with framing in the 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 people in the frame. Um, when you cut from one thing to another, you don't want your audience to be scanning the entire screen. So wherever your subject is, when you cut to the next thing, you want something in that same place. So if on one scene you have your subject in like the bottom right corner of the frame, in the next scene you want something in the bottom right corner to catch their attention again before they start looking throughout the entire picture. Or else they're going to be scanning every time there's a cut and try and find what am I supposed to be looking for, and by the end of it become tired and confused and... Mm -hmm. It's just not a. It's also like an like a like an eye strain thing. Yeah. So you'll see it a lot in um, action movies or action even games like action cutscenes. Um, when you cut in a fast paced shot, you want your attention to be on a specific point between each cut. So like like you were saying, if you have a a cut and the focus is on the bottom right corner, in the next shot you need your focus to stay at the bottom right corner and then move again but you can place the camera anywhere in the world and you can have mm -hmm. your but you just need to make sure that the focus on that next shot is um in that same spot so that your audience's eyes don't get tired yeah um and one movie that does a great job of this is uh, mad max fury road i was about to bring it up yeah mm, all of the um action sequences are expertly cut to if you go back and watch the movie almost straight down the pinhole in the middle um, this is where you'll see all of the action so that the audience never really has to move their eyes mm -hmm. to gain um, the the experience. And as much as it has to do with cutting and editing and the post-production, it also has to do with pre-production, I feel like, because you have to make those choices that I'm going to make sure that everything stays in the middle of the frame or stays in this part of the frame. So when we get to that point, it, we have smooth movement from scene to scene. And so... Like I was saying, he uses nature, but he also uses huge groups of people as motion within the frame, which ties into this. So he has big crowds and big armies of people running through a field. And then in the next scene, you still see you follow this movement through it. Um, and it really it catches your eye and it 
again, makes you really pay attention. And one of the things that he does really well is when there's a reaction shot, instead of having one person react to some like horrible news or something funny, he has multiple people do it. So there are a couple of scenes where there's this professor in a classroom and they say something, I'm sorry that I don't know what the line is, um, but then the entire class suddenly stops what they're doing and looks at him. And that's such a powerful moment when you see all of those people, they're all doing their own thing, they're all making noises, and then when this one thing is said, they all stop and look at him. That gives me anxiety because I feel like everybody <laughs> <laughs> he, like looks at me suddenly like oh no what did i do <laughs> yeah wow that's 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 really interesting yeah you know just that shot itself just sounds really interesting and like sounds really powerful mm-hmm. like they, they, there's a power to that sudden just sudden silence sudden silence yeah yeah that's that's and it sounds like it does a really good job of capturing that mm-hmm. it, it's amazing and um one of the other things that i really like that he did was when um he was giving directions for like each of the main characters in his, throughout his films. He would have them pick a gesture for themselves, and then throughout the film, they would have to continuously do that gesture. So whether it was like them like moving their shoulders or I don't know something else, something small like or maybe scratching the nose or something, they would pick that gesture. And then throughout the film, they would always do that gesture, so that when you see that character, you know who it is. When you see that gesture, you're like, oh yeah, this is the character that did this earlier, and so you don't get confused with who is who. Because I feel like that happens to me a lot. Yeah, and especially in like, you know, and not to sound like a, like a demeaning way, but like in films, like foreign films, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, if you're not a part of that ethnicity, it's difficult for you to discern um, each character from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and even Akira Kurosawa does a lot of his films in black and white, which yes. adds another layer to it. That's what Um, I find really difficult. And I've tried to, because I don't want to feel like it's because it's like a different ethnicity. And I'm like, I just can't tell the difference. (laughs) Everyone looks the same. No. Um, I think it's also in black and white because then it just, it, like you said, it's another layer that just makes you feel further removed than like, because we see everything in color and we can make these like tiny distinctions. Like, okay, this person has like a slightly different skin tone and like maybe like slightly different colored hair and all of these things. So you can categorize them but then when everything is in black and white everybody's on the same playing field <laughs> and you get yeah, a confused. fun fact did you know that people did not start dreaming in color until the first color tv was produced i did not know that but somebody brought that up the other day and i was confused how you see in color why did you dream in black and white i think that it's partially because people likely dreamt in black and white not like you dreamt in color until um, the black and white TV like film was produced. Okay. Right. And then once people started attributing like stories and things like that, um, and the brain started attributing like telling stories to occupy yourself mm-hmm. with black and white, then it was like, okay, well then while I'm asleep, let's do black and white. Okay. But then once the color TV was reintroduced, like when it's color TV was introduced, it reintroduced color into storytelling. And so that your brain once again was like, cool, let's put color in dreams. Yeah, I would like to see a study on that because... I mean, it's going to be a little difficult. I mean, not really. I mean, the first movie and film and moving picture didn't come out until the late 1800s. So you just have to go back to like when Abraham Lincoln was alive and ask him. Hey, do you dream in black and white? Hey, do you dream in color or do you dream in black and white? (laughs) Hey, hey, Abe. Abe, let me just... (laughs) Just be honest. Just be honest. (laughs) I 
got him. I did it. I my whole life. This is the moment I've been waiting for my whole life. <laughs> Get it? Because he's honest, Abe. I waited my whole life for that one joke. For that, <laughs> yeah, for I've, been, that. I've been preparing. <laughs> Come on, you have to say your joke. I don't know what my joke was anymore. I lost it. Do you dream yeah. in color or in black and white? Okay, but here's the other thing. They took pictures in black and white. So do you think... You know what I think? I think before they came out with colored um, images and stuff, everything just was in black and white. But that was another part for um, black and white films. Getting back to cinematography um, was the lighting. And so with that, they could do like heavy, heavy dark shadows on people when... To, to show their, like, inner emotions and desires and whether there was, like, this hatred in it in them. Like, they would have a huge shadow, like, across their face. Or if they were, like, divided between good and bad, this big shadow. Or they would be in completely in the dark or completely in the light. And it's, yeah, lighting is important, too. Good to know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> uh... Is that all you got? No, it's not all I got. No, you want me to get through all of my stuff and then all of your stuff? Do you have a whole bunch of stuff? Because I can just go. I can go. I'm ready. I still have two, three more. You know what? Things. Let's just go with the flow. I'll take a turn. Okay. All right. Do you want to try and find a segue into something that I said? Let me say the lighting thing again. <laughs> <laughs> Look at us all giggly today. Oh, man. Um, okay, so when I was first... Like when, when I, I was a young boy. When I was a young man. I was a young That's warthog. A song. What song is that? When I was a young boy, my, my father... father. Marching you don't know the song? You, you, a marching you band. don't know the song. Uh, I don't know the song. And I chose to make a podcast with you. I'm sorry. I play video games. Do you know... Vi do you know what a do you know <laughs> <laughs> you, we're gonna cut all this out we're gonna make you sound cool go ahead yeah, do you do you know what a, you, a there's a, a video do you know what a video game is yes well i'm stumped <laughs> <laughs> i have lost this argument um randaloni on top of it today <laughs> So cinematography is, is inherently, like I said, something that is controlled by the director or by the developer, whoever is controlling like or making these creative decisions. Yeah. So when I was thinking through cinematography in games, like it's hard to pinpoint like what is considered cinematography, what is considered cinematic in a video game, because video games are meant to be interactive, which thereby takes the control away from um, the developer or the designer to some extent. Okay. Right? Um, so I came up with this sort of spectrum. So there are different sort of styles of games when it comes to, like, being cinematic. Uh, back in, like, the 90s, people were first trying to sort of take um, live action and, and sort of, like, these turned video games into movies and it, or movies into these interactive video games. The first big example of sort of movies being brought into the video game world is uh, Digital Pictures 1992 Night Trap, which entails, um, it's a sleepover with, it's typical 1990s sort of sleepover movie where all the girls have huge hair and all the boys have giant pecs. 
Um, and and you play an FBI agent yeah. who is like sort of patrolling this house. I forget the specific circumstances, but basically what you do is each of these rooms is filled with like traps mm-hmm. and it's nighttime, hence night trap. No way. Basically, there's intruders trying to get into the house to kill the f- the kids mm-hmm. uh, or something along those lines. And you sort of, there's like six cameras and each of these cameras has a fully recorded entire movie it's a it's like an hour and a half long game and it's just a movie and the characters are moving in and out of these rooms and it's your job to go in and sort of check and see if there's any intruders and if there are you have to capture them in a trap it is incredibly difficult because it is very nitpicky and if you miss too many you die and it's like it's very specific it was sort of this first attempt of giving a a better cinematic experience to the gaming genre it's a poor attempt and the movie isn't that good anyway but that's that's sort of like the under the genre of like interactive movies it's a movie that the that the the viewer or the player is controlling in some way and a couple of other examples i would have of that is um david slade's 2018 um black mirror bandersnatch which was released on netflix uh yeah. Yeah, okay. it's a it's it's an interactive movie. The you have some control over it, but overall, every shot, every sort of angle, all of that stuff is is decided by the director beforehand, and the story is set out and you are merely just co- cooperating with it, yeah. if you say. Um another example of that would be Flavorworks t- 2019 Erica, which was released I think exclusively on the Sony's PlayStation. Um and it, it the same idea it's it, you can control it this one's better i think i played it because you can control it with your phone mm-hmm. right so you connect your phone to your playstation um and you use this app and you can kind of like control the b-roll and the decisions and the sometimes the dialogue that the character makes and that all falls under this spectrum of like the most cinematically um the, the most cinematic but the least control as a player you have because these stories are already pre-decided okay you know and and to to sort of like every single extent these stories are are pre-decided and you're merely just making small decisions along the way you're not and and what i mean is like you're not controlling the character itself Mm -hmm. you're not walking around as the character through this world yeah you're merely viewing this world and making the decisions for the character okay um the next sort of level would be interactive storytelling which is a, a genre of games made popular by Quantum Dreams, Heavy Rain, and uh, Detroit Become Human. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love so, that. Uh, Heavy Rain, 2010, Detroit Become Human, 2018. Um, so this 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 um, scale that you you have, this is you. you. This, this is, is me. Okay. I came up with this on my own. Um, just sort of this this idea of like the more interactive you become, the 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 less cinematic the experience is overall okay i would say not to say that there aren't exquisite cinematic moments because that's what i was about to ask you. yes there are exquisite cinematic moments within games and i will talk about those once i get you know to them to that point of the spectrum um but overall these games are more cinematic because you have less explicit control mm-hmm. um so in detroit become human uh you play as these three i think it's three androids and as uh the world sort of has to become accepting of the fact that androids 
um, have free will. Have you played this game? Yes. Oh, okay. Have you not? I have. You have? I've not played it, obviously. I've watched it again. Yeah. Um, Do not play video games. Do watch play video, video games. games. Do watch video games. So I was about to fact check you. I was like, if you haven't, I'm going to... No, no. I played it. Um, okay. I, I haven't played through like every single storyline. I just played it once okay. uh, for the experience of it. I bought it in like a like a bundle of Quantum Dream games. I bought Heavy Rain, Beyond Two Souls, and Detroit Become Human. Beyond um, Two Souls. I've actually played that one. You okay? actually played that one? Everybody, I've Dang. actually played that I one. I have not. That's the only one of the trilogy I have not played. Oh, it's so good. Um, Heavy Rain was really sort of the the first, there was like their first one, not their first game ever, but sort of the first. It was the first one in this style. Yeah, in this style where it's, uh, in that one, it's styled like a um, saw, almost a mm -hmm. saw type sort of scenario where you're, uh, son has been kidnapped and you play as um, the father of the son who's been kidnapped, uh, a detective who's searching for the son, and a FBI agent who is uh, working the case. And it sort of uh, popularized this, this genre, sort of pioneered this genre for, like, for all intents and purposes. Uh, and it's really fun. I'm not going to give anything away because I really think that you should just go play it if you haven't because... Goodness gracious, it's it's an amazing twist. Fun uh, gameplay style, really unique. Um, but, you know, when it comes to cinematic sort of storytelling, like this one has, you have more control than you would, say, Night Trap or Bandersnatch, but you still have less control um, overall because a lot of these scenes are what are called quick time events, which is, I think I mentioned in the last episode, which is you're given a prompt to press a button and then the character does something for you. Mm -hmm. um, so you're not directly controlling the character. You're just playing this quick time event. And then if you fail it, you fail it. And the character does something different. But So can I ask you, what would you classify these kinds of games as? Like, do they have like a specific like yeah. title? Uh, interactive dramas is what I would uh, okay. sort of define that as. So if I look up interactive dramas, it's going to show me all these games? Yeah, let's do it right now. Uh, we're on airplane mode. <laughs> 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 well because this was a conversation that i was having with my boyfriend the other day because he was really excited about the new video games that he was playing i was trying to explain to him that these were my favorite type of video games these are the ones that i watch the most and i would be the most willing to actually play because it doesn't really require much on my part much control on my part which i like because i am not hand-eye coordinated so i can't play like shooting games or anything like that because you have to, I'm sure you'll get into it, you have to like move the camera yourself and you have to like be pointing the gun and I can't do that. And so I much rather prefer like choosing what happens and then watching it unfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I looked up interactive drama. Um, a lot of places, you know, the names vary because it isn't really an established genre. So some people will call it interactive storytelling, um, an interactive story, uh, but you know, just sort of like interactive story, interactive drama, it all sort of boils down to the same thing where you're not, like, in complete control of this experience, you mm -hmm. know? Like, it's preordained to an extent. Um, you can make decisions in it, but overall, like, the cinematic experience as a whole is chosen and, and played out by the director and developer's wishes. Um, but then, you know, at the uh, complete opposite side of the spectrum from the first sort of idea of interactive like an interactive movie or just like a you know playable movie um is just a video game like a cinematic video game which would be like the ghost of tsushima or the uncharted series or halo um which is 
the games themselves have extremely cinematic moments, but overall, you as a player have the most control. It's kind of difficult to describe because in the way that I'm seeing it, in an interactive movie, the other side, where it's just like a playable movie, you're just watching it, you're not controlling any of the characters at all. You're just an outside force sort of making decisions. Like, you're just like someone's brain. And then in an interactive drama, uh, in the interactive storytelling genre, you're controlling a character, you can move them around, you can somewhat change the camera angle, but in the end, like, you're not completely controlling this character. But in an interactive, like, cinematic video game, you have complete control over where the character walks, jumps, whatever the character does, uh, minus cutscenes, you have control over. Like, you're aiming, you're aiming the gun, you're moving and climbing up and down the pole, mm -hmm. um, you have the most control that these games can offer, mm -hmm. right? And there's still cinematic moments, but overall, the cinematic experience is uh, down to what the player decides to do and look at. Okay. Um, so where would you put um, The Last of Us Part 2 on this list? The Last of Us Part 2 would be a cinematic video game. Okay. Because I would make the argument that it not only has just cinematic moments, the whole video game is very cinematic. I mean, it's the cinematography in it and this... Maybe it's not cinematography, then maybe it's just, like, game design is really good. Yeah. So, But I think that plays into it does. cinematography. It, it does, because you, there's another layer when it comes to video games, because in cinematography, you're taking the real world and what you have in the real world, and you're laying it out as a shot, but ultimately, you're you're viewing it in 2D. Okay. You know, not taking into account, like, really 3D, which, but, you know, who cares? Yeah, we won't talk about that. Um, You're laying it out in a 2D format. It's going to be taken in in a 2D format. But in a video game, it's three dimensions. So you're laying out the entire world that this person can explore, and you have to design that in a way that is aesthetically pleasing. Mm -hmm. So when I was coming up with like what makes a game cinematic, I had to sort of draw that line between the design of the game and what these cinematic experiences are. Okay. You know? What I would consider a cinematic experience in a game is a segment in the game, which is overarchingly more cinematic than just playing the game. Okay. So as an example, um, in The Ghost of Tsushima, which is a game styled after the movies uh, that Akira Kurosawa made, it's made as a, like an homage to them. Mm -hmm. um, you're playing a, I think I mentioned it in one of the other episodes, you're playing like a, a surviving uh, samurai as the Mongols take over Japan, or this small island in Japan, and uh, your goal is to drive the Mongols out, and as you continue to drive the Mongols out, you sort of lose your, um, quote, honor as a samurai uh, in lieu of stealthier tactics. So, like, the honor of a samurai is face your battle head-on um, and fight your foe fairly, but in order to like defeat the Mongols, the main character who ends up becoming this ghost of Tsushima has to like adapt and become more sneaky and uh, use different tactics. And it's based on a true story. Um, and it's styled after Kurosawa's movies in that every time you have a battle, like a major boss battle with someone, a one-on-one -on -one boss battle, the camera is completely out of the, ca the character's control, right? It is focused on, uh, it have these shots of you, and then the enemy, and then 
it'll have a shot of you and your sword, and you click your sword open, and then the boss battle begins, and then you, you've drawn your sword, and then you no longer have control over the camera, you're just playing this fight. But it's meant to, this movie is an homage to that style, not the movie, this game is an homage to that style of movie, to Kurosawa's style of movie. And so in those moments, those cinematic moments, it is nearly directly mimicking what Kurosawa would have done to give you this cinematic experience, mm -hmm. right? In those moments, you've taken away some control from the player to give this experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And the same thing in Uncharted. There, Uncharted is, is meant as an homage to, and it's kind of funny where these cinematic movies are sort of, at least the two I picked out, were just sort of homages to a specific style of filmmaking. So um, Uncharted is an homage to like the Indiana Jones movies, mm -hmm. right? So the this storyline is you're basically a treasure hunter and you're hunting treasure. And then, what? Whoa. No way. Wait, wait. You are a treasure hunter and you're hunting treasure yeah so that doesn't make any sense but you're searching for like these huge artifacts in the first one you're searching for el dorado in the second one you're searching for like something else but it's one of the staples of the series is these huge spectacle moments no but in the first one you find this giant german nazi u-boat in the middle of like the amazon and then you blow it up with a submarine missile on accident and then it explodes and then falls off of this waterfall um, and that's Whoa. a yeah, huge cinematic moment. Yeah. Um, and it's not as big as the rest of them because the rest of them are pretty great. Give me another one. And the second one, you start the game. The game starts with you hanging off the side of a mountain in a train car. Um, so the train car is hanging off the side of the mountain and you have to climb the train yourself. Wow. Mm -hmm. In the middle of... Mount Everest, like the not not Mount Everest in the Tibetan mountains, mm -hmm. um, and then in the third one, a you're in a cruise ship which capsizes and fills with water, and you have to climb up the cruise ship hallways while the like sideways, mm -hmm. so you're climbing up like doors and shit, and to get to the top of the cruise ship where you then fight off pirates. Pirates, not like our mateys pirates, Aww. but like 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 new wave pirates like the new wave pirates <laughs> neo pirates <laughs> uh where they're like r give me your do they still say r i don't think so oh. they're just like ah, it would have been nice if them. they would have kept to traditions yeah you know but you know these pirates pirates <laughs> pirates <laughs> you know, don't care <laughs> yeah pirates don't give their you know traditions um and then in the th also in the third one uh you're a stowaway on a plane that is flying over the saharan desert and as you get into the plane, become noticed. People shoot you. You accidentally make a car explode, which then sucks you out, makes the airplane explode and crash, sucks you out of the airplane, and you're flying through the sky with no parachute. But big spectacles like that. And then in the fourth one, you start the game driving a boat uh, in a violent storm towards a mountain while, like, 20 other boats are trying to crash you, your boat, and shoot you. And then at the very end of the game, spoilers, you have a sword fight because that one's based around pirates. So you have a sword fight with the enemy, like the big bad guy in a burning pirate ship. Wow. So just moments like that. And I think these toe the line of sort of what I said a cinematic experience was because you still have like a decent amount of control over your character during some of these moments, but not as much as during like the rest of the game. Mm -hmm. But it's just these huge, huge spectacles, and that's like the, the sort of the draw towards them. 
um, is these big bombastic moments where you're climbing up the side of a train car that's falling off an edge of a mountain and uh it's like the game opens and it's just like it just gets you and Mm -hmm. you're like well how do you get in this situation and then it starts in your completely different area with completely different people and so it's it's just uh those games are great those games are great man yeah but where did you if i can ask if you have an answer where did you draw the line between cinematography and game design did you have a defined line or you were just like, okay, let's not focus because I think it would be, you then just wouldn't be able to talk about like the environments or the lighting very much. Cause I feel like that's really part it, of, it is a very gray line, I okay. think. And it comes down to you, like how much of this is directly intended by the developers. Okay. So if the developers directly intend for you to see this moment or see this moment okay. in this way, yeah. I would consider uh, it cinematic. Okay. But if you as a player are just looking at it um, and it's not directly intended by the developer for you to see this, I wouldn't consider it cinematic. Okay. For example, if you're just in a level and you're looking at something that looks pretty, that's just game design. Okay. But, I'll agree. Yeah. Um, if you're walking down a path and suddenly the camera pans to the side of your character and it turns your character around to look at this moment. I would say that that is more of a cinematic moment. Yeah. So that's where I draw this line between in the sand. No, when you say it like that, it it makes a lot more sense. And that's what comes with cinematography is that it is so controlled and Mm -hmm. it's so thought out and planned. So I could see how when you are playing the character normally, you could have maybe a pleasing still frame or mm-hmm. something like, oh, the character fits perfectly with what's happening in the background or in the distance or something. But like you're saying, the um, developer didn't intend that to happen. That was just because you were there at that moment. Yeah, and with... it's a well-designed game. It's a well-designed game, yeah. Yeah, and actually that kind of brings me to like just a side point. There's like a an actual market for video game photography. Oh, yeah. Which is something that surprises me. And it's why in games nowadays you see a lot of like photo modes. Mm-hmm. So you can turn it into a photo mode and you can add whatever you want to the, this mode and you can sort of change the environment. Um, for example, oh, I forgot to mention this and it's so cool. You were talking about motion within the frame yeah. for Kurosawa and Ghost of Tsushima. Um, the game takes that and implements it. Right. So the main way you find your waypoints, which is where I'm supposed to be going next, which yeah. is uh, sort of a staple in um, open 3D world games, it's typically they'll have a waypoint of some sort. Usually you have like a mini map like on the screen. So like in GTA, you have the tiny little map of wherever you're at, San Andreas or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it has a little marker on the edge of the mini map where you're supposed to be going. So, you know, the general direction. Well, they dropped that idea and came at it from a completely different angle. So your direction marker is the wind. <gasps> That's amazing. Right? And so the wind will pick up these particles of the flowers or the, um, the the fireflies or the leaves or the snow or whatever you're around in the environment and blow it up into the air in that direction. That's it awesome. It is so great. And That's it's a, beautiful. And it's a perfect representation of what Kurosawa did yeah. on purpose with that motion within the frame. You mm-hmm. were talking about rain or other people. It's just that that little nod and that just aesthetically pleasing. Like when they showcased that, it was mind blowing because no one's ever really done that much with particle effects yeah. to that extent. You know, they have in the Call of Duty games, um, in the cinematic moments in the Call of Duty games, they'll have like dust and explosion and fire and stuff. But no one's taken it to this sort of like just beautiful placement. Mm-hmm. Like the because a big staple in 
uh, Japanese sort of aesthetic is is the pink flower blossoms. Cherry blossoms. And cherry blossoms. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, and just looking at that and the vibrant colors that you can see when it's when it's the wind is blowing all of these petals into the air behind you, it's the oh, best. I'm just imagining, and it looks so beautiful in it's my so, head. It's so pretty, and it's because it's de- uh, developed by Sucker Punch and released in 2020, July 2020. Um, mm. And their first game in, I don't know, like seven years seven or so seven or eight their last game being infamous second son i think 2015 2014 it was a came around as uh when the p it was a first game on the ps4 that was their last one infamous second son yeah um did you yeah they did the infamous series i know i thought there was another one after that though no i don't think so infamous first light or something oh well that was supposed to be so there's this thing in the gaming industry where uh, they did the same thing with Spider-Man Miles Morales. Uh-huh. It was intended to be a DLC, um, but because of sort of the technicality, it, it's it's partially a business tactic to get more money and partially a just like where the, the, it was too big of a project mm-hmm. for us to make it just DLC. Oh, okay. So they created an entirely new game out of it, but the game itself is short relative to the original game. So First Light came out, probably around 2016 if if i'm saying that um second sign came around 2015 it was a year after okay year or so after i need a ps5 um you got 500 that's more, probably more than 500 dollars Oh, I saw it. You can get it at Target starting November 12th. Our sponsor for today. (laughs) (laughs) Our sponsor for today is uh, November 12th. November 12th. (laughs) For $500. I saw an ad in the Target magazine that said it comes out November 12th only for $500. Yeah, but you never want to buy a console as soon as it comes out. You always want to wait until the second or third gen because there's going to be bugs with the console. Uh, Um, And they're also going to release like the Pro PS5, which is going to run a little bit better. I'm also waiting for more games to come out because there's like there's no games really out like, right now. There's like five games <laughs> that are yeah. on it, and it's I think it's backwards compatible um, to the PS4, and you can also re-download games that you've purchased online from the PS4. So there's that, but like I already have a PS4 that runs fine. Might as well just not. I have a PS4. Do you? Yeah. You actually have a. You didn't it, know that I had a PS4. There's your brother's. No, it's mine. Yours? Yeah. What do you play on it? Nothing. <laughs> that was when I was excited. I watch Netflix. <laughs> you watch Netflix? Is it a PlayStation 4 Pro? No. How flat is it? It's pretty flat. Like how tiny? Is it like? It's not tiny. It's like it's the PS4. It's, it's not. Like, it's not fancy or anything. Why did you get a PS4 to watch Netflix? Because uh, not just to watch Netflix. When I got it, okay, we had one and then it got stolen, and then we bought another one because I was like, this game came out and I really want to play it. You know what that game was? Uncharted 4. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, this looks really cool because I was watching some people play it. And then I stopped watching it because I was like, I want to play it. So I went and Isn't bought- that a great feeling when like a game is so interesting that just watching it is like like not enough. Yeah. Like watching someone play it, you need to experience it. That's so beautiful about video games. It's yeah. just like that feeling of like, I want to experience this world. There's been a few that have done that. Uncharted 4 has done that. Tale of Two Souls, I did that. There was one recently that I didn't watch. Oh, Last of Us uh, Part 2. Last of Us Part 2. I really want to play it. I There's a lot of backlash for that game, for the ending, for some of the choices that they made during it. I won't spoil it for anyone that wants to play it. 
Um, I personally thought it was a beautiful game. Um, the ending I didn't quite resonate with it, and I feel like a lot of people threw that out of proportion because they were mad about something else that happens in the game. I think that you know, in the end, it's the developer's and director's choice. You know, this is how they wanted to end it. Yeah. So they ended it that way. Mm-hmm. They did it, and that's fine. And they haven't been like, oh, they haven't like updated it and changed the ending or anything. Like they're like, this is our story. This is what we wanted the story we wanted to tell, and we told it. And I know, because um, I got, before I stopped watching the, the playthrough of it, I, I know what you're talking about, what happened that people were very um, mad about. And I commend them for, like, keeping that. And I don't know what happens at the end. I don't know how it ends. Mm-hmm. But um, that's very commendable for them to be like, no, this is what we wanted, and we don't care if yeah, you don't and I mean, like, like it. At its core, The Last of Us, both one and two, is a story about people dying. Mm-hmm. And people getting freaked out because somebody died. Seems a little bit, you know, haughty. <laughs> it seems just a little haughty yeah. for you to be like, uh, and but this, someone died someone died yeah. someone someone important died and i'm just like yeah they did that, that the entire the first game mm-hmm. the important people died at the beginning some more important people were introduced and died in the middle and then at the end a lot of people died <laughs> <laughs> and so like it's just you know get out of your own panties play the game it's play so game. it's fun it's a great game it's beautiful it is so that that's why i brought it up because what i had saw was absolutely dropped it gorgeous I definitely think it's up there with the a cinematic video game. And I think most games that are coming out nowadays that are sort of styled in this gritty, hyper-realistic style are just cinematic masterpieces. Yeah, well, they have to up the game now. I mean, because so many, they've been doing it. And so they're like, if we want to compete with these people, we have to start upping the game. But there's also, you know, there's something to be said about allowing your games to be stylized to an extent. And you know, not to say that these games aren't stylized, in their own way, I think Uncharted definitely is stylized in that over-the-top sort of hyper, like I said, hyper-realistic. Mm-hmm. But I feel like everyone's sort of leading towards the same style right now because that's what's selling. It's just this action shooter um, thing that's just like, oh, that's the game. I'm sorry, my mind was wandering and I thought of something else, but... <laughs> what did you think of? Uh, the Witcher. I want to play it. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I have... Um, all three of those on Steam, but like most people, my Steam library is full of games that will never be touched. Ah. Uh, yeah. It's just, that, that's how they get you with those great deals. Yeah, they recently had a deal. My boyfriend was talking about it because he bought it for like $16 for the Halloween sale that they had on Steam. And I told him not to play it because I wanted to watch him play it. You think I want to play it? I do want to play it, but... What's the game? What do you mean? The Witcher. Oh, The Witcher. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was just some other game. No. He, because we've both seen the uh, Netflix adaptation of it, mm-hmm. um, and I've done a little bit more research and how they created it and everything and what they're planning to do, which is, oh, they got a lot more coming. Have you have you watched it on Netflix? Nope. Uh, oh, like so usual, good. I spend all of my time watching anime and playing video games. Henry Cavill. I will say Henry Cavill is Bay. Oh my God. He's he's. Did I tell you that? Um, in order to film that scene when he's like in the the bath you did tell me this yeah. say it again yeah when to film that scene when he was in the bath he had to dehydrate for like a week mm-hmm. because in order for you to be able to see those veins and those muscles like that you have to dehydrate your body so your skin tightens around it and so he said when he was filming that scene like and after he filmed that scene he was just sick like he was just physically ill oh, i feel so bad but he looks so good <laughs> <laughs> they do the same thing at bodybuilding arnold schwarzenegger does it did the same no thing. way yeah yeah, when you when you do bodybuilding um, competitions, you know the point is to show off your tan and muscle accentuated body um, in a way that is just like over the top. So they dehydrate for like a week. There's no water. 
or like minimal water, you know, what you need to survive. And then your body just sort of like sucks into itself. And then since you have such pronounced muscle figure, like your muscles seem huge. But kind then of, I feel like your muscle, I mean, it's not possible. Well, I don't know. Well, all things are possible. But if like, if the skin is shrinking around like the muscle and tightening, then if you like flex the muscle, well, it, it pops. Probably <laughs> one day you just flex too hard and it pops. And your skin pops open. <laughs> I don't. It's probably don't, not possible. Probably not. Um, but I've heard things with like people who like shove steroids. People put something in their muscles to make them look bigger. You've never seen that? I, I don't want to see I don't know if it. it's like, it's not steroids, but it's some kind of like, you know how like people have like boob implants and they put like the silicone in it? Yeah. I think they put some kind of like silicone in their muscles just to make them look bigger. And I've seen, I've heard horror stories of people who have like then flexed and it just all comes oozing out. <gasps> yeah. Oh gosh. All I can think of the, the, the most I've done to enhance my muscle figure is when I was a kid, I had a Superman costume. <laughs> and um, it had two things. It had a fan inside the costume, so it would blow air to make my muscles look big. And then it had these like bicep implant things that you would squeeze your arm, and it would push up this little thing to make your muscles look big. Aww. And I was like, I was the toughest kid in school with that garment. <laughs> <laughs> bullies! If my bullies could see me now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. Yeah. What were we taught? What's the episode about? Again? What? <laughs> I'm just thinking about Henry Cavill now. Oh, oh my God. man. But only... Touch on the Cavill fever. But only... <laughs> but only him with the uh, long white hair. There are some people that just look better when they're grimy. When they're, like, dirty and they're, like, they just have this grime. And he is one of them. When I see him pristine and playing Superman and all that, I'm like, nah, doesn't do it for me. No. When he's all dirty and like he's been awake for five days and he's fighting dragons oh boy <laughs> yeah that gets me going that gives me a case of the cavil fever <laughs> burning up the only cure is more cavil more cavil <laughs> like more cowbell i know okay <sighs> i will quickly just dive into one more thing i won't um do you have more to talk about no, I I pretty much you went through everything. I mean, I hit my limit, and unless something else hits my brain. Okay, then I'll just I'll briefly just talk about one more thing that I really wanted to talk about, um, which I had mentioned before in one of our previous episodes was um, Citizen Kane. Um, we talked about him before when we were talking about um, the special effects that they had used for the um, auditorium scene, the the political rally. The uh, cinematographer Greg Toland, um, he was a cinematographer for Citizen Kane. Um, and a couple of the things that I just wanted to briefly talk about, cause I thought that they did, um, these things really well. And that is what the movie is like known for. Citizen King is known for a lot of things and it's still one of like the most, like the most famous movies that you will hear cinephiles talk about. I would really recommend that you watch it, but also if you don't, I'm not going to hate you. I, took I me, know I'll hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I, it took me a while before I I saw it. Um, I saw it sometime in high school. Anyways, um, one of the things that they do really well is deep focus. So deep focus is when you have everything in frame, no matter how far away it is in the frame, is in focus. So one of the scenes that they do really well with this is when Citizen Kane is a little boy, um, and his family is like debating a heavy topic that they're trying to make this big decision. I won't go into what it is so you can watch the movie. You see his mother and this lawyer up in the forefront um, signing papers and doing legal talk while 
Citizen King, as he's a little boy, is way in the background outside in the front yard while it's snowing and he's playing with his sled. And you can see all of this in focus. And it, it really, like, builds the world for you. And it also, like, isolates him because he is within, like, a window. And so you get this feeling that is throughout the film that he is, like, isolated. That he is somehow, he he's not a part of everybody else. He's, he's always been, like, searching for this thing. He's always been searching for, like, this love and compassion. And he's, like, never really, like, had it. And you can only get that when you have this deep focus. Because imagine if it was just shallow focus which is just everything in the foreground is in focus and everything else is blurred out you wouldn't have that moment uh you wouldn't see that this has been something that's been carried with him since he was a young child into adulthood um but they do this a lot throughout the films uh, especially with other scenes where there's a lot of people within the the frame the other thing about the frame is that it's huge so there are a few scenes without throughout the film where you can see the ceiling. So that means all of the sets that they had to make for this film, they had to put a ceiling on oh, them. That is disgusting. Yeah, it is, that isn't is it? Really difficult. Can you imagine being on that film set and like seeing the sets with ceilings? Like you're putting your actors into a box. That's <laughs> just it's it's strange. Um, but they had huge framing. So in some of the scenes, you can see the ceiling. Not only that. There's one scene that comes to mind where you can see both the ceiling and the floor. <laughs> the camera is within the ground. They had to like cut a hole out of the ground and put the cameraman down there with the camera. So you can see the ground and it's pointed up so you still see the ceiling. You get to see this whole room. And with that, it drives home this like deeper... Everything that they do with camera placement and the motion of the camera and everything is done with a purpose. And that's the, that's the thing about cinematography that we've been talking about. Everything is very controlled and is done for a reason. So when they're doing this, they're showing that even though he looks big in the frame, obviously because the camera is looking up at him, he to us looks like this big, powerful figure. The camera is representing his feelings, how low to the ground he feels, how insignificant he feels. Because at this point in the movie, he's lost this big election that he was going up for mayor, I believe. And so... When you see this, he's we're down here with what he's feeling, but he to us still looks like he's big and strong and is capable and all of these things. And it's it's so fascinating to watch. You like see his foot and then like as he keeps walking further away from the camera, you see his whole body. It's it's incredible. It's it's so beautiful. Same thing with the the framing of the characters and where the, the camera is placed. Um, when he is with his second wife she is seen a lot on the ground, showing her insignificance to him and his power over her uh, through a lot of the film um, or when she's in it. She's, like, on the ground seen doing, like, a puzzle or she's on the ground, like, looking through papers and all of these things. She's on the ground a lot while he stands over her. There is one scene, however, where she gets the high ground on him and suddenly they're eye level, and this is when she starts, like, the power shift between them when he's kind of given up on his life and like he's just like I'm never going to be happy then and she gets this upper hand on him and that is seen through the positions of these characters which is something this is part of cinematography and what makes it so great is the meaning that comes with it that not only intellectually or like emotionally are they now on the same playing field she is physically on the same level as him no longer below him um, and after that she then leaves him and the movie progresses but I just think this is a perfect film that everyone should watch. Again, I won't hate you if you don't watch it, but it is very interesting. It's very different from the movies that we watch today and see today. What is the word? It is intentional. Intentional. 
and I lost my train of thought. You should watch it just for the intentionality of it, which I feel like we don't really. I mean, we still see it today, but not to this level, to this extent where it feels like everything was done with a specific purpose. Yeah. You want to make that? Is that your recommendation? I will make that my recommendation. I did have another one, but I will make Citizen Kane my recommendation. Yeah. I mean, what was your, you, just, you mentioned your other one. My other one was 1917, which I personally haven't seen, but I was reading up on it. And so the whole film, my boyfriend really wanted to watch it. The whole film is supposed to be one long take. It's not... But it's supposed to be set up as one long yeah, take. You know, with a lot of, like, very purposeful editing and such. Yes, where editing, where you can't really tell that it's a cut, where they will, like, stop filming on, a like, uh, an image of the landscape or something. So when they can cut that and then put the next scene right on top of it and it looks like you have it cut because it's in the same yeah. place. If you also want to watch that one, the cinematographer was Roger Deakins. Uh, incredible. He he was the cinematographer, and he used a small handheld camera for most of it because a lot of it is following around the main characters as they're going through these trenches and trying to deliver the secret message to the um, other troops. Um, and that's uh, motion movement throughout the frame is another big part of the the film and what keeps the um, audience's attention and engagement in the film. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess that means my recommendation. Um, I'm always, I feel like I'm always sort of behind when it comes to recommendations because I forget. It was your idea. It was, I know. And it's a great thing. And I think it's that we need to keep doing it. I just always forget to come up with one until like the last minute. That's okay. But I do have a good example for this one. I was going to mention it and then I never wrote it down. But the 2018, yeah, 2018's God of War on the PlayStation 4. I want to play that one too. God, there's so, so many that good. I want to play. Um, something that was... Uh, interesting and, and different at the time is uh, is no loading screens, no loading screens at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the entire game is, is one long experience, and the only loading screens you'll see is when the game is booting up. And uh, they wanted to do that because they didn't want to break the experience. Media for the intellectually impoverished is produced by Trey Taylor Smith and Miranda Randy Zaxt. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at MFTII Podcast or email us at MFTII Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.